On a cold, dark night in the early 1900s, Joseph Weil and a fellow conman drove out to Willow Springs, Illinois to tap a Western Union telegraph wire. The two men shivered as they unloaded their shovels, their breath cloudy in the frigid air. Joseph's partner looked up at him. The ground was frozen solid. Joseph shrugged and shook his head. We have no choice. We have to bury it tonight. They turned their attention to a large electronic box resting on the back of their rig. It was about three feet square, 18 inches deep, and looked quite technologically advanced, not to mention extremely heavy. The men began to dig, their thinly gloved fingers growing numb. It was 10 degrees below zero that night, and if they kept on like this for too long, they were sure to freeze to death. Joseph and his partner grew pale at the sound of the approaching police. They dropped their shovels and raised their hands high, squinting at the flashlight shining on their faces, preparing to face the constable who was wielding it. Joseph's heart skipped a beat. Sometimes the law could be even colder than the weather. Welcome to Con Artists, a podcast original. I'm Alastair Murden. Every week, we peel back the layers of history's greatest deceptions and tell the stories of the hustlers, swindlers, and fraudsters that orchestrated them. I'll dive into their psychology, break down their tricks, and explain why anyone might fall for a con. You can find all episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Con Artists for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. Last week, we met Joseph Weil, otherwise known as the Yellow Kid. We discussed his progression from small, simple cons to a large-scale deception so sensational, it eventually inspired the plot of the 1973 Best Picture winner, The Sting. This week, we'll explore the Yellow Kid's descent from master con artist to honest senior citizen, a journey that took him all over the world. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. At the turn of the 20th century, men across the city of Chicago could often be found in pool rooms, placing wages on horse races. These pool rooms were comfortable and private, elegantly furnished with everything necessary for men to place their bets on races happening all across America. There were large wall sheets that displayed the race's information, telegraph operators who received and relayed the results, and cashiers that collected and dispensed the money. Joseph Weil, an accomplished con artist in his 20s, saw an opportunity in these pool rooms to pull off a scheme that would elevate him to con artist royalty. As we discussed last week, Joseph convinced a wealthy theater owner, who he gave the pseudonym Marcus McAllister, that he knew a Western Union wire operator who, for a price, would tip them off on the results of a horse race before betting began. Joseph then built a fake pool room and staffed it with con men and actors. With this facade, Joseph convinced Marcus that he was legitimate, even though Marcus didn't actually make any money off of the scheme. Ultimately, Marcus handed Joseph $7,500 which translates to about $22,000 today, and unwittingly waited for Joseph to run the con again. 
Joseph contacted Marcus again several months later, but with a different scheme in mind. Joseph knew he couldn't pull the pool room con on Marcus twice, though he did use it on a number of marks after him. Instead, Joseph decided to capitalize on a popular scheme being employed by con artists and criminals all over the country, wiretapping. Wiretapping, or the process of intercepting telegraph wires, had been occurring since the Civil War. Union and Confederate soldiers would scrape a bit of insulation off of a telegraph wire and splice their own line in, enabling them to listen in on their enemies. As of the early 1900s, wiretapping was no longer a covert military strategy. In fact, it was a fairly common racket. Due to its ubiquity in the conning community, Joseph was well-versed in the scheme and decided he could easily take Marcus with a wiretapping con. First, Joseph took Marcus to a pool room in Willow Springs, Illinois, a southwestern suburb of Chicago. This pool room was particularly large, and due to its volume of business, there was always a lot of cash on hand. This was the pool room to go to when one wanted to make a big wager. Joseph took Marcus to a secluded spot nearby and showed him the telegraph lines that ran to that pool room. He pitched Marcus a new technology that tapped the telegraph wires and enabled you to replace messages with your own. With this technology, they could control everything being sent into the pool room, like the results of horse races. Marcus was thrilled by the proposal as it seemed like a surefire way to turn a quick profit. The necessary equipment was difficult to come by, but Joseph knew of a place where they could purchase it. Moffitt's Electrical Shop was located at 268 South Clark Street, just one block away from the Chicago Board of Trade and four blocks from the Art Institute. Thanks to its premier location and all of the expensive-looking gadgets on display, Moffitt's Electrical Shop appeared to be a first-rate establishment. In reality, the owner, Joe Moffitt, was a con man, and his entire shop was run by criminals. The shop may have been well-stocked, but there wasn't a working device to be had on the premises. Moffitt had been thoroughly prepped by the Yellow Kid, so when he and Marcus arrived to see what Joseph had described as a special message transformer, Moffitt had the apparatus ready for them to inspect. The equipment was housed in a square box and, according to Moffitt, was one of the most intricate technological mechanisms constructed to date. He encouraged Marcus to try to lift the box, but he could barely get one end off the floor. It was far too heavy. Marcus asked to see inside the box, and Moffitt raised the cover. Within, there was a complex grid of wires and switches that all attached to a telegraph receiver with one large cable fixed to each end. Moffat explained that one cable taps the wire and sends it into the box, and the other cable sends any message you want to the pool room. All they needed was a telegraph operator who could intercept the results of the race, delay the results from reaching the pool room, then send that information onto Marcus, who would have the time to place a surefire bet. Joseph insisted he knew a telegraph operator who could help them out. Marcus just had to foot the bill. Marcus didn't hesitate. He paid Joe Moffitt $12,000, the equivalent to roughly $34,000 today, 
and set a date with Joseph to place his bet at the Willow Springs pool room. With that, Joseph had effectively swindled Marcus a second time. Yet, if Joseph wanted to keep Marcus on the hook, he had to make his plan seem so convincing, Marcus would never question his integrity. This meant that he still had to carry out the ruse somehow. He had to convince Marcus that the wire had been tapped and he had to let Marcus place what he thought to be a surefire bet. To prove the former, Joseph would have to bury and secure a fake transformer at the secluded spot along the Western Union wire, risking possible arrest by police who patrolled the area. As for the latter, Joseph had no plan to ensure that Marcus placed a winning bet. Even though he would make Marcus think he was betting on a horse that had already won, Marcus would be gambling on the horse with the best statistical chance of a win, just like everyone else. These last parts of Joseph's con involved an incredibly high level of risk, but the yellow kid was not afraid. On the contrary, the risk excited him. Most con artists, Joseph included, show traits of antisocial personality disorder, previously termed psychopathy. One of the key behaviors of APD is a lack of regard for others. Joseph's choice to engage in these risky final steps makes sense, as high-risk behaviors are often associated with people who lack empathy. In a 2017 study published in the Journal of Clinical and Experimental Neuropsychology, Robert Snowden, Chloe Smith, and Nicola Gray sought to learn whether risk-taking behavior on the part of people who lack empathy was due primarily to boldness or disinhibition. For the sake of the study, boldness was defined as a lack of fear of consequences. Disinhibition was defined as a willingness to act impulsively. Through a series of tests, the psychologist concluded that people who lacked empathy were more willing to take risks because they were bold, not disinhibited. For a person like Joseph Weil, this conclusion adds up. He swindled marks without fear of consequence and rarely performed a scheme on impulse. Joseph, like most con artists, planned ahead. But sometimes, plans can only take you so far, and you have to take a risk to make it to the next step. This is where most people might turn back, afraid of the possible repercussions of their actions. But the yellow kid was bold. He was fearless. He leaned into the risk and landed himself outside in the biting cold, trying to dig up a cable wire from the frozen earth with a constable standing right in front of him. Coming up, Joseph takes yet another risk in his attempt to avoid arrest. Now, back to the story. On a cold night in the early 1900s, Joseph Weil stood in the freezing cold, his hands in the air. He had been caught in the act, attempting to install a fake wiretap device. As his eyes adjusted to the darkness, Joseph recognized the officer standing in front of him as Constable Herzog of Willow Springs, Illinois. The constable grinned. He'd finally snagged the infamous yellow kid right in the middle of committing an illegal act. Not bothering to hide his joy, he told Joseph and his partner that he was arresting them for wiretapping. Joseph looked Constable Herzog square in the eye and said, we haven't tapped any wires. It was true, of course, they hadn't. 
and they weren't even intending to. If the constable had examined their equipment, he would have found it to be completely ineffective. Still, Joseph knew the constable could bring them in and be paid for his services. So the yellow kid took a risk. He offered Constable Herzog $250 to keep quiet. Take the bigger payout right now, Joseph reasoned. The constable might get a $20 reward for taking Joseph and his partner back to the station, but it would be hard to prove that any crime had been committed, and then they would be released. Constable Herzog weighed his options. Joseph was right. It would be hard to prove anything other than criminal intent, so the yellow kid would be back out on the streets in no time. The constable took the deal, advised the men to build a fire so they didn't freeze to death, and went on his way, leaving Joseph and his partner to finish their work. With the fake wiretap planted, Joseph could convince Marcus that a winning bet was guaranteed. In reality, Joseph was secretly going to play the odds, just like everyone else. Before taking Marcus out to the spot where he and his partner had buried the special message transformer, Joseph stopped by the Willow Springs pool room on his own. He spoke to the chief telegraph operator in the room and asked him which horse he would pick to win the fourth race out of New Orleans that day. Then he paid the operator to hand the clerk a message to read out to the room two minutes before the race started. When the clerk read out the coded message, it would tell Marcus who to bet on. If the horse didn't win, Joseph was prepared to tell Marcus that the telegraph operator he had hired to relay the messages from the transformer had screwed something up and that they would try again another time. With his plans set, Joseph took Marcus out to the buried device and convinced him that the fix was in. Then the two men went to the pool room, nursing their drinks, anxiously waiting for the clerk to call out the signal. Finally, they saw the operator walk up and hand the clerk a small piece of paper. The clerk unfolded it, stepped up to the window, and called out, Jerry Hunt is acting up. That was the cue. Marcus ran up to the window, placed his bet on Jerry Hunt, and stood back waiting for the results. Jerry Hunt won the race, and Marcus won his bet. Joseph's bold risk yielded a big reward. In addition to the $12,000 he had swindled out of Marcus for the wiretapping equipment, he also received $2,900 from his winnings. Marcus was eager to work the scheme again, but Joseph told Marcus that if he kept going into the pool room and making a killing, people would get suspicious. In truth, Joseph knew he'd been wildly lucky in predicting Jerry Hunt's win. Marcus reluctantly agreed to wait a while to make his next bet. Never one to leave money on the table, when Joseph was finally ready to pull their scheme again, he told Marcus that the transformer cables had been damaged by the weather. Marcus would need to pay to get it repaired. Joseph went out to Willow Springs, dug up the box, and threw away the cables. Then, he and Marcus went back to Joe Moffat's shop, and Joseph pretended to negotiate a fair price for Joe to fix the box and replace the cables. The three men decided that $7,800, or just over $22,000 today, was a reasonable fee, and Marcus handed over the money. 
Later that week, when he was told the fix was in, Marcus showed up to the pool room, ordered a drink, and sat down. He wasn't nervous like last time. He was confident, excited even. He finished his drink and ordered another, waving men away as they tried to take the other seat at his table. He was saving that seat for Joseph. Only, Joseph never showed up. The operator never gave the clerk the tip. The clerk never called out the code. And Marcus McAllister finally realized he'd been swindled. Joseph's wiretap con had brought him great fortune. He was quickly recognized as one of the most successful con artists in Chicago, but he knew he was capable of so much more. He ended his wiretap scheme in the early 1900s, but proceeded to build even grander and more elaborate cons. He gave away free plots of land in Michigan and made a profit on exorbitant registration fees. He staged a high-end gambling club in a rented apartment on Chicago's Gold Coast. He faked dice games, forged stock certificates, and fixed boxing matches. He even printed his own cash. He once created a fictitious bank with Big John Worthington, a conman Joseph had previously deemed the Wolf of LaSalle Street. Through this bank, Joseph and Big John created fake lines of credit totaling $600,000. His next big con occurred in the late 1930s when Joseph met a wealthy woman he refers to in his autobiography as Mrs. O'Keefe. Mrs. O'Keefe lived in Chicago, but she owned a copper mine in Arizona and had no idea how to manage it. Sensing opportunity, Joseph teamed up with another infamous Chicago conman named Fred Buckminster. They'd worked together on and off for over 15 years and made a natural pair. Together, Joseph and Fred convinced Mrs. O'Keefe that they were a famous mining engineer and his assistant. They would gladly manage her mine. Mrs. O'Keefe paid for Joseph and Fred to travel out to Arizona and inspect the property. Even though they lacked training, they could tell just by looking that it was valuable. It just wasn't being worked. However, this hardly made any difference to them. They lingered in Arizona for several days, enjoying a vacation from the Midwestern cold, all on Mrs. O'Keefe's dime. After Joseph and Fred returned to Chicago and gave Mrs. O'Keefe their analysis of her property, she decided to sell the mine rather than deal with the hassle of opening and managing it. Joseph suggested that she might get a better price for the land from somewhere abroad than she would in the US. Germany, perhaps, might be interested. Though it was the late 1930s, Germany had not yet gone to war. Adolf Hitler did, however, seem to be taking the country in that direction and would surely need copper for his efforts. Joseph told Mrs. O'Keefe that he happened to have connections at the Reichsbank and volunteered to travel to Berlin to make a deal for her mining property. Mrs. O'Keefe agreed. In his autobiography, Yellow Kid Weil, Joseph described her decision as another case where greed overruled patriotism. Greed is a fascinating concept and one that is highly debated in academic communities. Theologists and philosophers have opinions on greed as a human motivator, as do economists and psychologists. Although greed has historically been seen as a nefarious trait, until recently, 
little research has been done to test the correlation between greed and immoral behavior. That changed in 2018 when psychologists Terry Schengens, Marcel Zeilenberg, Niels van der Ven, and Zega Bruegelmans published a study that confirmed what was suspected to be true. Greedy people are more likely to take part in unethical behavior. Among other discoveries, the psychologists found that greedy people are more likely to transgress because they found the positive outcome of misbehaving more desirable than acting properly. A 2019 study by German psychologists Patrick Mussel and Johannes Hevig examined the effects of the trait greed more specifically, focusing on whether it could predict self-seeking financial decisions. They studied the influence of greed through a test called a resource dilemma, which is a situation in which an individual must choose between their self-interest and the interest of the community. Since a selfish choice maximized personal gain at the expense of others, it was thus classified as a greedy choice, and subjects who made such choices were considered to have the trait greed. This study concluded that the trait greed can predict selfish economic decisions that come at the expense of others. Mrs. O'Keefe's selfish economic decision at the expense of her fellow American citizens designates her as a greedy person, just as Joseph said. However, Joseph's suggestion to look to Berlin in the first place, coupled with his subsequent trip across the Atlantic, a trip paid for by Mrs. O'Keefe, indicates that he was just as greedy, and his greed would come at a price. Coming up, Joseph heads to Germany on the brink of World War II. Now, back to the story. In the late 1930s, Joseph Weil took yet another risk. He traveled to Berlin just as Germany was about to start World War II. Mrs. O'Keefe believed that Joseph was going to meet with his connections at the Reichsbank and that those men would put him in touch with the Führer himself. She gave Joseph full authorization to sell her copper mine to Adolf Hitler, should they be able to come to terms. She also gave Joseph a handsome expense account, which he anticipated he would be able to use while he enjoyed a vacation. Unfortunately, Joseph found Berlin to be quite different in the late 1930s than it was the previous time he had visited. It was no longer the vibrant city he remembered. Instead, it was unstable, dreary, tense. Joseph wanted to get out of Germany as soon as possible, so he acted quickly. He went to the chancellery to make a formal request in writing for an interview with Adolf Hitler, but his request was denied. Despite the denial, he immediately cabled Mrs. O'Keefe, informing her that negotiations with Hitler were underway. Joseph had never had any interest in meeting the Führer or in attempting to sell him the mine. What Joseph had wanted was a denial written on the official stationery of the German government, and that's what he got. He then went to the Reichsbank, made a general inquiry unrelated to his business regarding the mine, and swiftly received a reply written on official Reichsbank stationery. After he had collected his official stationery samples, he packed them up and traveled to London, where he was able to enjoy the vacation he had been craving. Still on Mrs. O'Keefe's dime, of course. Then, 
Joseph had the two German letterheads copied. He forged a note from Hitler on one piece of paper and correspondence from the Reichsbank on the other. Both letters indicated an interest in Mrs. O'Keefe's mine, but an inability to continue negotiations due to a legal issue. When he returned to Chicago, Joseph gave Mrs. O'Keefe the letters, and while she was pleased with his progress, she wanted him to travel back to Berlin immediately. Joseph had seen the state of Berlin firsthand, and though his stay in London was pleasant, he could sense that war was about to tear Europe apart. He had no desire to be there when that happened, even if it meant letting go of a bigger score. He refused Mrs. O'Keefe's request, and she cut off his expense account. After that, Joseph skipped town and went to the East Coast to hide, as he suspected she would soon discover that his letters had been forged. Joseph's suspicions were correct. Not only did Mrs. O'Keefe discover the letters were fake, she also learned Joseph's true identity and reported him to the federal authorities. This meant that even though Joseph was thousands of miles from Chicago, he still had to make sure he kept a low profile. After spending some time in Washington, D.C., and then making his way up to New York, Joseph finally felt safe enough to come out of hiding and attend a small party hosted by two other con artists, John Harris and Dick Hartley. The party was far larger than Joseph expected it to be. He had anticipated an intimate gathering of con artists in a hotel room, not a full-blown drunken bash. One of the people in attendance was a highly-ranked army officer, Though he was introduced to the officer under a pseudonym, Joseph sincerely hoped their interaction at the party would be forgotten. To be recognized by anyone with a connection to law enforcement would be bad news for the yellow kid. Unfortunately, the officer remembered Joseph a couple of months later. John Harris and Dick Hartley were arrested for mail fraud, and due to Joseph's association with the conmen, the officer assumed he had also taken part in the scheme. He reported Joseph to the proper authorities, and the yellow kid was officially arrested by postal inspectors. Joseph tried to defend himself, insisting that he had not committed mail fraud, at which point the postal inspectors threatened to bring up the matter with Mrs. O'Keefe. They gave Joseph a choice. He could go to prison for a very long time for his crimes against Mrs. O'Keefe, or he could do a short stint in the clink for the mail fraud case. He managed to get the postal inspectors to forget all about Mrs. O'Keefe, and in early 1940, Joseph was sent to federal court for a crime he didn't even commit. When the United States District Attorney asked Judge John William Clancy to sentence Joseph to four years in a federal penitentiary, Joseph then tried to negotiate. He pointed out that his presence at the party did not necessarily indicate his involvement in the mail fraud scheme. And then, something incredible happened. The Honorable Judge Clancy asked Joseph Weil what he thought his sentence should be. Joseph said that he thought one year was fair enough, but the judge compromised with both the defendant and the government by giving him two. Though Joseph claims he wasn't shaken by his time spent at the United States Penitentiary in Atlanta, after completing his sentence, he vowed to quit crime for good. That's right, 
In 1942, after conning people for roughly 50 years, the Yellow Kid officially went straight. After he returned to Chicago, Joseph got a legitimate job as a telephone solicitor for various churches, charities, and political candidates. Due to his questionable past, he was not allowed to handle any funds. Instead, Joseph solicited contributions and was paid a percentage by the organization's headquarters once the money was received. Joseph claimed to not have many wants in his later years and found himself to be perfectly happy working a legitimate job and living an honest life. At age 70, he said, It has been a great relief to walk the streets freely, to enter any public place I choose, and to look any policeman in the eye. Despite finding satisfaction in going straight, Joseph still made a point to publicly discuss all of his exploits whenever anyone wanted to listen. He began working the local Chicago lecture circuit. To hear the yellow kid himself recount his cons in person was probably an incredibly interesting and special experience. The yellow kid was constantly described as charming, charismatic, and eloquent. He also detailed his cons in his autobiography, Yellow Kid Wile, the autobiography of America's master swindler. However, for a man so intelligent, so savvy, so fascinated by people, Joseph Weil may not have possessed much insight into himself. There's a chance that the Yellow Kid's lectures may not have consisted of anything more than a man bragging at a podium. As we've discussed in other episodes, in addition to a stark lack of empathy, one of the most common personality disorders found among con artists is narcissism. Narcissism is often confused with self-esteem. And though the two concepts are related, a narcissist and a person with healthy self-esteem are actually quite different. In fact, according to a 2017 article published in Scientific American by Scott Barry Kaufman, narcissism is related to a higher score on every single established pathological trait, while self-esteem correlates negatively with all of them. In the same article, Kaufman asserts that a typical narcissist is characterized by arrogance and entitlement, while those with high self-esteem are satisfied with themselves but do not consider themselves to be superior to others. Kaufman states this analysis plainly by saying, Narcissists are more driven to get ahead than to get along. In his autobiography, Joseph Weil wrote, I want to do what I can to promote harmony among my fellow men. He also says, People say I am the most successful and the most colorful confidence man that ever lived. I won't deny it. There is a good reason why I am regarded as in a class by myself. Perhaps the best explanation for this seeming contradiction is to understand that narcissistic personality disorder falls on a spectrum. Perhaps on a good day, Joseph falls on one side of that spectrum and sincerely wants to contribute to a world in which everyone gets along. But most days, he seems to fall on the other, where he wants to prove that, among his fellow men, he is the best. Joseph says the police and the media have estimated that he obtained a total of roughly $8 million over the course of his conning career, or the equivalent of roughly $86 million today. Because he never kept any books, he doesn't know if those figures are accurate, and therefore, we don't either. 
What we do know is that in 1975, when the yellow kid passed away at age 100, he had $195 left. This estate existed in the form of a credit to the nursing home in which he died. Joseph Wilde's money clearly came and went, but his legacy stands strong. The range of his characters, the scope of his schemes, and the influence of his stories have continued to fascinate people long after his death. The compiler of Joseph's autobiography, author W.T. Brannan, may have admired the Yellow Kid more than anyone. In his foreword, he refers to Joseph as a legend and a man of many real accomplishments. Joseph Yellow Kid Wilde's status is clearly well-earned. Throughout his long and lucrative career, Joseph never made a bet he couldn't win. Thanks for listening to Con Artists. We'll be back next week with a new episode. For more information on Joseph Weil, amongst the many sources we used, we found Yellow Kid Weil, the autobiography of America's master swindler by W.T. Brannan, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Con Artists for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Con Artists on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. I'll see you next time. Con Artists was created by Max Cutler and is a Parkour Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Scott Stronach, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Carly Madden. This episode of Con Artists was written by Ellie Reed, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Alistair Murden. <laughs>